0: I'm now joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers nearly 140 ETFs, over $1.2 trillion in assets. That, of course, includes the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY, which was the first U.S.-listed ETF, and now the first ETF to eclipse $500 billion in assets. Uh, It hit that mark last week and Matt is now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, always a uh, great having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, Nate, great to have great to be on. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right, so uh, SPY did just become the first ETF to hit that 500 billion dollar milestone and you know, it's interesting. I was looking back so assets have nearly doubled from five years ago. And clearly the market has been a big driver here, which uh, you and I will get into. But I'd love to have you just put this in context for us. I mean, SPY was the first US listed ETF uh, back in 1993. And here we are, uh, what, 31 years later, it's still the market leader by something like, you know, nearly $60 billion in assets or so. so. So put this in context for us.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a great milestone. It really reflects the longevity of not only SPY itself, but the ETF industry. You, know, you obviously have a lot of competition for assets out in the marketplace, from different types of strategies. It just sort of signifies the ongoing usage of ETFs within portfolios, and I think you'd, you know, hit on that acutely well in terms of how the market did assist in this asset race to $500 billion, cause, you know equity markets have done so well pretty much since this fund was launched, but obviously in the last couple of years. But SPY really represents a really diverse user base that showcases all the different types of buying behavior patterns that ETF investors can enjoy. You have those large-scale institutional investors that are structuring things like relative value arbitrage hedges versus futures because of the liquidity and transparency of the ETF. You have you know, long to lend activity, securities lending activity. You know, being able to short the ECF uh, to you know, tax loss harvesting the single name equities, and then applying a beta hedge, and then you know, unwinding that in the new year. And that's why we do see some seasonality of flows as well. But then also long term buy and hold, and then you know, spies even. Uh, very integral and central to a lot of what the defined outcome funds are doing because they use five robust options markets to construct their hedges. And so I think this is really reflective of the ongoing usage, really the flexibility, the optionality, the customization that ECFs have to provide, but also transparency, cost efficiency, and naturally the liquidity as well.
0: You know, it's funny, you may or may not be aware of this, but last year I made a, uh, a very bad prediction, that spy would lose its etf crown i i I said a competing etf might pass it in assets and uh, you all are making me look bad (laughs) but i always stay honest here and so uh, let let me be the first to say a i was wrong uh, and it looks like i'll continue to be wrong and and b congratulations i I do think it's a big milestone and i think that's well said um, in terms of just the variety of use cases for an etf like spy and the the innovator uh, funds that's a good example just i don't think people realize how uh, prominent this ETF is just across the ETF ecosystem. But I, I think even bigger picture, this is just such a continued endorsement of the ETF structure itself and, and really the, uh, the ETF industry as a whole. So again, congratulations on the, uh, on the milestone. Um, all right, so we, we mentioned performance and I, I do wanna get into the performance of the S&P 500 and I think more importantly, the top heaviness of that index and and the so-called concentration risk, which is a hot topic right now. And it's something that you did a full deep dive into uh, last week. I thought you wrote a really nice piece on this. And, you know, I I guess there's a number of different directions we we can go here. But I'll just start that if you look at what has driven the performance of the S&P 500, we know that some of the largest mega cap tech names have been huge factors here. And so right now, if you look, the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 represent about 32% of the total index, which means the concentration at the top is now, I show higher than in the dot-com bubble. Um, And, you know, I think that's the big headline, right? Or or I would say the big scare headline right now, because investors all know what happened following the dot-com bubble. And so how concerned are you about all of this? Is this something that you think investors should be worried about?
1: So I'm not concerned about it as if it was an indicator of doom or a you know, forward-looking harbinger of doom, that you know, the market is going to fall because the last time this happened was the dot-com bubble, and that was you know, very, very bad for everybody. Um, there's actually no connection. We did this in the, in the blog post that I wrote. So if you look at the levels of, of market concentration and then the subsequent six to 12 month forward looking returns, there's no connection, there's no correlation. The R square metrics are basically zero. So there's no relationship to what you have for concentration levels at the top and then the subsequent forward looking returns. Also, in years where the, the market was up, the um, sort of contribution from the top 10 was only on average about 29%. Clearly last year was well above that, it was like 63%. But on the way down, the top 10 contributes to only about 12% of the market loss. So I wouldn't just use one data point of the dot-com era, which was driven by mania, the bubble. This is not really being driven by a mania bubble type of uh, fervor. It's being driven by these firms are generating more cash flows and earnings than the rest of the market. You know, if we look at last year, uh, from an earnings per share perspective, you know, these firms contributed you know, something to the effect of you know, 31% of earnings per share growth in the S&P 500, and the rest of the market had negative 5%. Right? So they returned value, the rest of the company didn't, they have been, been rewarded. So I'm not really concerned that the harbinger of doom that the market's going to fall just because we surpassed the dot-com level. But I am concerned that this has an impact on portfolio construction, namely diversification. Right? And that's the whole emphasis for my concern is that it's impacted your diversification of your portfolio. Well,
0: let's get into that. And um, I, I guess I'll just say, you know, for the record, and I've said this before, when you invest in the S&P 500, this is what you sign up for. Right. You get the benefit on the way up when we have periods like this. And unless you have a crystal ball, I think it's very difficult to properly time when to when to get out. So I I just want to state that. And the other point I would make here, too, is the one that you hit on in that if we want to compare this to the dot com. Uh, bubble or, or not compare it, the The difference here is if you look at the underlying fundamentals of these companies, and, and, and you said that well, if you look at the, the cash flow from these companies and the earnings, this looks different than a lot of the companies we saw in the late 90s. Now, to, to your point, I think really the takeaway here should be not that you have to avoid the S&P 500. And, and I was actually visiting with uh, Zeno Mercer from Betify earlier, we touched on this, but I don't think it's that you need to in- avoid the S&P 500, but you need to make sure your portfolio is diversified overall. And, and so if we assume that, what are some considerations for investors, Matt? I mean, is it as simple as adding things like mid caps, and, and small caps, and perhaps some international? What, what should investors be thinking about here?
1: Yeah, and, and that's the thing, too, is, like, it's not, you shouldn't just get rid of your S&P 500, right? That's still a core part of your portfolio, that it's now becoming a, a bigger part than you normally would have had. And I think if we just look at historically, you know, when we talk about diversification, this concentration has impacted, your geographical diversification. So the S&P 500 is up 38% since the end of 2020. The Aqueak US is only up 5%. The top 10 names. Now make up, uh, roughly 25% oh uh, sorry, 20% of all global equity market capitalization. U.S. equities make up 60%. So you're no longer as geographically diversified as you once had been because of this massive concentration. Similarly, from a sector perspective, there are only four sectors in those top 10 names. Only those top 10 are in just four sectors. Typically, it's usually around six. And the four sectors, that's a low. So there's not a lot of diversification from a sector perspective. Even so, two, if you just look at it from a sector perspective, those two, two, of, the, two of the sectors make up 25% of the S&P 500 out of just those top 10 names. So you're not really diversified from a sector perspective anymore. Similarly, you're not really diversified from a stylistic perspective because growth exposures by Morningstar definition – Reflect represent about forty three percent of overall S P five hundred exposure. Value is just twenty one percent, and blend is obviously the net is the difference. But typically, on average over the last thirty years, it's usually thirty one percent growth, thirty two percent value. So you're no longer really diversified stylistically. And similarly, from a market cap perspective, you know, mid and small caps right now only make up around seven point nine percent of the S P fifteen hundred. Typically, that's around eleven point two percent. Not really diversified from a cap perspective either. If you just you know thinking about it from the total portfolio, so things you can do you know, very easily: <laughs> add a little bit more mid and small cap back to historical averages, add a little bit back to developed x us maybe EM. I know it's kind of like losing with the football, going back into international equities you know, hasn't really panned out. But again, not looking at it from a return space, but from a diversification space, a long-term perspective, and then you know sectors. Um, there's some things you could do there around the edges and sort of rebalancing some of the sectors and holding individual ones to make it even more even. That's probably more of an active decision. And then the last one is, again, sort of you know, now you're getting a little bit more into the active space, but using something that is systematic or fundamental that awaits securities based on things beyond market cap that actually looks at valuations and risk sensitivities, and that can mean either smart data or active EPS. So there are things that can be done, and the best part about this is They can all be done with ETFs. It's actually quite easy.
0: To your last point on uh, smart beta ETFs, I'm glad you brought that up because anytime there's a – conversation that is this prolific around an investment topic, I always try to think, okay, what is what is the ETF impact here? How does this impact the the industry at large? And I'm not sure if you saw this, but our good friend Dave Nottig tweeted out something to the effect that we could see smart beta 2.0. I think he was saying this could be sort of a uh, resurrection of smart beta ETFs. And I I thought that was interesting because at least from my perspective, I feel like smart beta has uh, been somewhat left for dead. With the rise of active ETFs over the past few years, but do you think we could see a, a real reemergence of smart beta ETFs and in, in areas like you know equal weighting and value tilting, tilting towards small caps because that's really what smart beta ETFs specialize in overall. So do you, do you think smart beta ETFs are prime for a comeback here?
1: I think it makes the conversation to maybe utilize the smart beta ETF portfolio far easier because you can go and tell someone who's holding. Again, broad market cap weighted exposure, and say, look, you're really not that diversified as you once were. There is perhaps a better way to approach U.S. equity markets that is not so tied to market capitalization, that gives you a little bit more diversity from a style and cap perspective. So that conversation, I think, is much easier to have because we have such an anomalous period of market concentration. So I do think it does set up some tailwinds for, you know, revival of, reconsidering the multi-factor smart beta landscape and i think that's the one that would be the 2.0 i don't think it'll be your single factors in terms of like because then you're making an active decision oh, like oh i should have quality or value or a ball or size what or have you but actually being something that's like core oriented with a low tracking error return differential to the broader market so it allows you to tilt towards different not so just based on market cap, but perhaps based on a blend of v- value, quality, and ball things along those
0: lines. Just a couple minutes left, um, and I, I think you were alluding to this, but what about just actively managed ETFs? And, you know, we, we both are well aware, again, of the rise of those products over the past several years. And there's... <laughs> There's distinction here in this category. I mean, you have traditional stock pickers. I think primarily what we've seen the rise of are, are more systematic active approaches. But do, do you think the the top heaviness of the S&P 500 will be a a, a contributing factor to this continued rise of active ETFs overall?
1: Yeah, again, I think it helps conversation, right? So an active manager can go and say, look, I'm picking the best stock, I'm reweighting it, you're not going to have so much concentration. It allows you to have the conversation around why you might consider using active irregardless of performance trends. And I think that's, again, that's one of the big headwinds on the active U.S. equity front is that if we look at some of the performance trends just from last year, uh, U.S. equity managers didn't really do that well. So, you know, if we look at um, in the Morningstar peer group of U.S. large-cap blend funds, this includes mutual funds and ETFs, right? So, we have to take a broad picture of this. Only 20% of those U.S. large-cap blend funds beat the S&P 500 that, or beat their prospective benchmark, which is most likely going to be the S&P 500 last year. So, there are performance headwinds there. Now, in the multi-factor space, you probably still have some of the multi-factor smart beta and you probably still have some of those same things because the problem is once you deviate from the market cap weighted paradigm, like many of these will, or you have an active risk constraint, it's really hard to not, like you, you know, not own the Magnificent Seven. And if you didn't, well, then like you underperform. If you have a risk constraint where you can't go so much overweight Apple or Microsoft, like you're going to be kind of constrained. But to answer your question, because like, this is like a nuanced topic. It makes that conversation much easier because you have a period of an anomalous behavior where only a few names represent a sizable portion of the global equity markets. And I think the one thing that I'm watching in terms of where does this end or where does this play out, and people always say things only end badly because otherwise they wouldn't end, I don't think it's going to go that way. I think you're going to see a little meaner version of how fundamental trends brought us to this space. And if you look at the back half of this year, Q3, Q4, what do we start to see? We start to see the other 490 stocks in the S&P 500 start to have stronger earnings growth than the top 10. And those fundamental turn shift, you can see a little bit of a normalization in the market concentration. That's what I'm looking for. And that's another reason why I do not think this is the biggest risk of all time.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. I think I I think I agree with that. Um, regardless, I will tell you, I'm not betting against SPY anymore. <laughs> so, uh, look, yeah, it's, uh, it's like
1: it's like uh, you know, I'm never going to bet against Patrick Mahomes either,
0: right? So that's the same idea. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, again, congrats on uh, SPY hitting 500 billion. Always enjoy having you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks,
0: Nate. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors.